0: Hebrews chapter ten verses one through eighteen says this. For, since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise they would not have ceased But would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, sacrifices and offerings you have These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put My law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then He adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any Offering for sin. Let's pray. Lord, this morning as as we listen to Your Word, we know that if Your Spirit doesn't help us, our hearts will be fickle, our, our minds will be distracted, our ears will be deaf, our hearts will be closed. So we know, Lord, that we can only truly understand Your Word with Your Spirit's help. So we ask, God, that Your Holy Spirit would help us. Open our eyes to see Your glory. Open our hearts to be able to receive Your Word with gladness. And we pray, Lord, that Your Spirit would transform us more into the image of Your Son. pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Admit you did wrong. Resolve to do better admit you did wrong, resolve to do better. One of my friends, Jeff, got married a couple months ago and strategically, knowing I'm a pastor, placed me with all of his groomsmen that weren't Christians during the dinner. And they were actually quite eager to have spiritual conversations. Thankfully, the the man who officiated the wedding gave a really clear gospel presentation. And one of his non-Christian friends was offended by the gospel message. And one of the things that he asked me was, John, I've been observing all sorts of different religions. At the end of the day, aren't they all talking about the same thing? Admit you did wrong. Resolve to do better. I wonder how you view the Christian life. Maybe you understand that Christ died for your sin, that that He is a gracious Savior, but when you think about your own life, this kind of encapsulates your own spiritual life. A lot of wrongdoing a lot of admitting that you did wrong, and a lot of resolving to do better. Is that what the Christian life is? Is that what God expects of us to do? What makes Christianity different than that kind of thesis? What what the author of Hebrews wants us to understand this morning is that that mantra of admitting that you did wrong and resolving to do better couldn't be any more different than a central message of Christianity. That the gospel isn't fundamentally about this kind of admitting that you did wrong and resolving to do better, but rather is focused on this sacrifice that Jesus has accomplished for us. This is going to be the main idea for us this morning to trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus, the, the better, true, and finished sacrifice. So so the author of Hebrews is going to take time here in chapter 10 to focus on on who Christ Christ is and what He's done for us (coughs) through three kind of commands that He wants us to do in life who Jesus is. Number one, to turn away from useless shadows. To turn away from useless shadows. Number two, to turn to the sanctifying sacrifice. To turn to the sanctifying sacrifice. And lastly, number three, to trust in the seated Savior. To trust in the seated Savior. The other Hebrews here in this kind of latter portion of the book, after kind of rebuking the readers for being too lazy to understand complicated stuff, then it takes the time from chapter 7 until chapter 10 to do a comparison game. He takes the Old Testament laws that the people were being tempted to turn back to, these Hebrew people, and then compares it to what Jesus offers. And at every point of comparison, he's arguing that Jesus is better. So in in chapter 7, he compares the priesthood from the Levitical priesthood to the priesthood of Melchizedek, and he says that Jesus is better. In, in chapter 8, in the beginning, he compares the earthly kind of temple that, that the Israelites used and compares it with the heavenly temple, and he says where Jesus is, is better. In, in the latter portion of chapter 8 into chapter 9, he compares the promises of the Old Covenant with the New Covenant, and he says that Jesus is better. And now here, in, in chapter 10, what, what the author of Hebrews does in the climax of, kind of this comparison, in the climax of his argument, he says that Jesus offers a better propitiation. Better propitiation, which is like a Christian SAT word. I just wanted to keep the P's in line, right? So priesthood, place, promise, propitiation. All I mean by propitiation there is sacrifice. That, that what Jesus offers with his blood is better than anything that the old covenant could offer. That's better than than bulls and goats. And, And that's really what we're going to be looking at this morning. So let's start with point number one here. Turn away from useless shadows. To turn away from useless shadows. Let's look at verse number one. Read with me. It says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, Make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? After working to compare these, the priesthood, the temple, the agreements between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the author of Hebrews takes time now to compare how effective the covenants are. So let's compare Jesus... To the Old Covenant, and see what works better. The, the Old Covenant, or the law, in the words of the, this author here, only had the shadow of the good things. That it itself was not the reality of the things that would work. In other words, the Old Covenant system of sacrifices, where you would go into a temple and you would offer your bull or goat or lamb, and they slaughter and they spill blood. That system never worked. It never worked. It couldn't perfect worshipers or, or clean them or sanctify them and make them holy enough to be able to enter into God's presence. They could go into the temple courts, but they can't go into the Holy of Holies. Right? They can't go to where God dwells. And the author's point is that it wasn't designed to. The whole point of the Old Covenant sacrifices and system and the way that the temple was set up was not designed to actually work to begin with. And the evidence that the author uses for why it doesn't work in terms of perfecting these worshipers, making them clean enough to enter into the Holy of Holies, is that they keep giving the same sacrifices year after year. Because if the thing worked, they wouldn't have to do it again. They wouldn't have to do it again. If the sacrifices were truly effective, then, this, then the worshipers would be purified once and for all. They would actually be clean. They would actually be pure. Actually not have a consciousness of sins. Now, now, the author isn't talking about an ignorance of sin here. Like, you have no idea what sin is. right? Like, what? Murder? Like, what is that? That's not, that's not what the author is saying here. What he's talking about this cleansing, removing a consciousness of sin. He's talking about a deep cleansing that goes beyond just your hands and what you do. But actually goes all the way into your heart and your head. That, that sacrifice that really worked wouldn't just forgive you of the stuff that you did wrong, but it would so cleanse you, so purify you that you would be restored to the point where sin doesn't even enter into your mind. It wouldn't even be like an option to you. It's almost like a restoration of the Garden of Eden. I mean, what did Adam and Eve eat when they fell into sin? What was the fruit called? The fruit of what? It's OK, you can actually speak here. right? What was the fruit called? Yeah, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. You see, what Adam and Eve were stained with when they, when they sinned and fell and ate the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil wasn't just sinful actions, but sinful consciences. And no amount of bull's blood could drown a guilty heart. Some have defined stupidity as doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Right? In this case, That's exactly what the Israelites are doing. Right? They're going in. They're giving the same sacrifices over and over and over again and they're still sinful. What is the author trying to say? He's saying that if you go back to these sacrifices, if you go into the temple and offer a bull every single year and you expect that to cleanse you every single year, you are stupid. That's what he's saying. That's not what they're meant to do. So, what are these sacrifices meant to do then? We, be, we believe the Bible's true. We believe that God commanded it. So, is, so is God just kind of leading the Israelites into, into stupidity? Like, what's the point of all these sacrifices then? Well, the, the author answers that question in verse 3. Read with me. It says, But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. (coughs) The sacrifices themselves aren't stupid. God commanded them, right? They're a good thing for the Israelites to do. But they serve a purpose that's different than actually cleansing them. They serve as a symbol. As a symbol. You think of all sorts of different times in the Bible where you see symbolic kind of representation, right? Ezekiel gets commanded to lie on his side for like months on end, right? The point isn't that Ezekiel laying on his side actually does something, right? It's, it's a symbol. It's meant to represent something. He's, he's using it to teach a truth to the people as they look at it, right? In the same way, these sacrifices don't actually do something as much as they point to something else, okay? they, they remind you of your sins year after year. They serve as soul examination. They're, they're tangible reminders that, that as you see the blood of the bull and the goat get spilled, as a priest takes his blood and sprinkles his blood on the altar, you would get reminded that you are dirty, that you need cleansing. And this reminder would happen year after year. It's like a health exam or a physical where they remind you, like, hey, I looked at your reports, you're really unhealthy. Every single year. And scans and exams are helpful, aren't they? They're useful. They, they serve a purpose. But they help in identifying a problem. They don't assist in fixing the problem, right? They, they help in identifying problems, they don't help in fixing them. So, so the point that the author's making here is that the Old Testament sacrifices can't heal you any more than an x ray heals cancer. You're looking to the wrong thing to fix your problem. Now, I don't think any of us in this room have a proclivity for goat sacrifices, but we've all fallen into a trap of thinking that our hands can clean our heart. Right, a guilty husband works extra hard at washing dishes one night. Right, a resolve to admit that you've done wrong and resolve to do better—kind of mentality. The truth is that even our best efforts to stand pure before God is as useless as the blood of bulls and goats. You can't pay your bills with monopoly money. You can't cleanse your conscience or cleanse your soul with your own actions. What you need is a true sacrifice. So, So that's the first point of what the author is trying to guess to do. He's trying to guess to turn away from useless shadows. Here's here's point number two. Turn to the sanctifying sacrifice. To turn to the sanctifying sacrifice. Read with me from verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure." Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. The idea that bulls and goat sacrifices don't work isn't a new idea. So so the author is writing to to a bunch of Hebrews that are listening to this, that converted to Christianity, and they're being tempted to turn back to Old Testament practices. They're, They're being tempted to go back and do sacrifices again, go back to the old way of doing things. Right, simple. You go in, you take care of business, you go on, you live with your life. And, the old, and what the author of Hebrews is trying to say is, uh-uh, this idea isn't new. Right? What I'm talking about with the bulls and goats not working isn't a new idea. And if you want me to show proof of it, let's go all the way back to Psalm 40. Right? So, he, so he quotes the Old Testament here to show how God from the very beginning didn't desire sacrifices and offerings. In fact, Psalm 40 makes clear that God doesn't delight in any of that stuff. He doesn't expect us to become good enough to be acceptable to Him. And He doesn't delight in our attempts to be good enough to be acceptable to Him. He doesn't even like it. One of my guilty pleasures is watching trashy reality TV. Uh, One of my guilty pleasures for a long time was a show called Big Brother, which was like this trashy reality TV show. They all end up in a house for a summer. It's like a giant game of Mafia where people lie and deceive one another in order to win a half million dollars. And one year, the winner was a Catholic school teacher. In the midst of lies and deceptions, I mean, this guy was a master manipulator. He said in the confession... Or he said in, like, the side interview, he said, you know, I'm doing a lot of things I'm not proud of. But after this, I'm going to go to confession and get it taken care of. The problem with Dan and his kind of go-to-confession mentality is that he treats God like a vending machine. You go, you you plink in some confessions, and God will output the appropriate amount of grace. The problem is that God isn't a machine. He's a being, right? And he's clear on what he desires and delights in. He can see through our fake attempts to be good enough, and he sees ourselves for who we truly are. What we need isn't an inner resolve to do better or a trip to the confession booth. What we need is another person. We need another person. See, what what God delights in here in Psalm 40, in this passage here, isn't in our sacrificial acts, but in somebody else. In somebody else. God prepares a body. There's someone in the law that they're talking about, and his name is Jesus as He comes into the world. That God doesn't delight in sacrifices and offerings, but He does delight in His Son. If you ever take the time to read through the book of Hebrews, I highly recommend it. The whole first half of the book is just on who Jesus is. Right? This true God and true man being. This, this Son, the divine Davidic Son. And what does this Son do? He comes to do God's will. He comes to do God's will. The author talks about more here in verse 8. Read with me. It says, When he said above, you have, not des- you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and-, and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. He then added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. God has taken away the first to establish the second. The the Old Testament sacrifices served a very specific purpose. they served as a shadow pointing to the person that was to come. And now that that person had come, the need for sacrifices had disappeared. There's no need for this process uh, for sanctification because Christ has accomplished it. And notice the reason here in verse 10 for why this happens. It says, by this will. By this will. Whose will is He talking about? God's will. It's not God's will. It was God's intention for us to be sanctified. Think about that. That God wants to purify us and to cleanse us in such a comprehensive, full, conclusive way that that through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, God would be able to take care of our deepest need. See, God gets rid of the first in order to establish the second. He's given you an offering once for all time. In fact, this is the first time in the whole book of Hebrews where you see the words Jesus and Christ put together. Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, the Anointed One. The, the anointed Davidic Divine Son offers His body in such a way that you will never need any other sacrifice ever again. That if you're in Christ, you have been sanctified. There's nothing else that you need in order to be made holy. When I was living in Washington, D.C., I got invited to have lunch with one of the pastors of the church. And I woke up late. And because and, D.C. is a walking city, I sprinted over to the... To the senate office building where he worked. He was a chief of staff for like a senator somewhere. And he opens the door and he says, hey John, good to see you man. Why don't you come on in? Blood drained from my face. He's walking me through these marble hallways, shows me his office, introduces me to all these powerful people. And he goes, hey, why don't we just have lunch in the like senate lunch like place downstairs? I'm like, oh, okay. I look down, I'm wearing a white t-shirt jeans, faded jeans, and like Adidas boosts, (laughs) right, and everyone else around me is in suit and ties, they're making some of the most important decisions in the country, and I'm sitting there, and the whole time, there was one prevailing thought in my mind, I don't belong here, (laughs) right, I don't belong here, I wonder if you're sitting here this morning and you're feeling the same way, you look around, you're able to Sing songs, everyone kind of has a chipper mood on their face. seems like Jesus is just kind of like radiating sunshine onto them while you have your own personal thundercloud above you. And the whole time you're thinking to yourself, I just don't belong here. If you knew what I did last week, if you knew the things that I've done, you would know that I don't belong here. Well friend, if you're in Jesus Christ, you do belong here. You do belong here. Not only do you belong here, but in Christ, you are so sanctified. You are so perfect, so holy in the Lord's sight that you can ascend and enter into God's celestial temple right now. Why? Because you have Jesus. We have a great High Priest. One who has done everything that we will ever need. One who is perfectly holy. One who knows our every weakness and sin and failure. One who has fulfilled the law perfectly. One who bore our sins in His body on the tree. And what God is saying here by saying that this was His will from the beginning is that Christ was God's plan A. That He never intended for you to get on the hamster wheel of trying to become good enough. That He desires for you To come to Christ, and if you go to Jesus, He will give you everything that you need. If you're not a Christian, that's exactly what we want you to know here this morning. This is the good news of Christianity. Not that we're going to give you some eight-step recovery plan to become a better person, or to help you with your job, but that fundamentally, your biggest problem isn't something outside of you, but something inside. There's a sin problem. And you need a Savior for a just and holy God. And Jesus Christ, in His kindness, came and suffered the punishment that you and I deserve. And He died on the cross and rose three days later. So if you repent of your sin and trust in this Jesus, if you you trust in Him, if you place your faith in Him alone for your righteousness, for your life, you can be forgiven completely. You can receive a cleansing that goes deeper than your hand that goes into your heart, that you can have confidence going before a just and holy God and find everything that you need in Christ. There's nothing else that I would rather talk about. I'm sure there's nothing else that that, that Tony or any of the pastors here or even any of the members here would rather talk about than Jesus. So if you're not a Christian here and you want to know more about that, feel free to talk to anybody around you. This is like the place to talk about Jesus. I encourage you to do that. So what the author of Hebrews does is he takes these two ideas, right? Turning away from useless shadows, turning to the, the Savior, right? And he pieces them together into kind of this climactic third point. Right? That, that we need to trust in the seated Savior. Trust in the seated Savior. Read with me from verse 11. And every priest stands daily at His service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Imagine all the priests of Israel standing in the temple courts day after day. A nonstop toil. A, a conveyor belt brings a bull after bull, goat after goat, and the priests are standing there Right? And they're slicing throat after throat after throat, making sacrifices all day, every day, no breaks, kind of like an Amazon factory. right? Blood up to their ankles. Sacrifice after sacrifice. And all of those actions did literally nothing. Can never take away sins. They're useless. But then comes Jesus. Verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Sacrifice after sacrifice, endless toil. Infinite standing. But then Christ shows up. He offers one sacrifice, not a multitude of sacrifices, not a continual sacrifice that keeps on going into eternity, one sacrifice for sins. And for what time period? Forever. For all time. Instead of standing up like these priests continually making sacrifices and intercession before God and making payments for sin, after he presents this one sacrifice, he sits down at the right hand of God. And what does it mean for Christ to sit down? It means that his work as a high priest is complete. There's no other sacrifice to make. That doesn't mean that Christ stops interceding for us, right? We, we know from God's Word that, that, that it says that Christ lives to ever intercede for us, right? To make intercession for us. Christ is always going to be able to be our mediator. He never stops doing that. What the author of Hebrews is trying to say here is that there's no other sacrifice to make. There's no point where Jesus looks at our life and goes, Oh, dang it, they did it again. And then gets up from his seat and tries to take care of the problem. It's a finished Work. There's no asterisk to his forgiveness. There's nothing left for Christ to pay. That he paid it all. That when Jesus said, It is finished, he meant it. He meant it. And where does he sit? He sits at the right hand of God on the divine Davidic throne. That that he sits not as a high priest who, not just as a high priest who has accomplished the task perfectly as a king, reigning over all creation, waiting until his enemies are being made his footstool. That this victory isn't complete yet. He's still waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. We, We still have toil and tribulation today, don't we? But the submission of his enemies is an inevitability. It will happen. His enemies will be made His footstool. Christ is just waiting as He reigns. Verse 14. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, in Christ, we have been perfected forever. Forever. Now, now, when the author uses that word perfection, he doesn't mean that we're perfected, perfect. in the sense that, that we never sin or struggle. I had a professor in undergrad telling me that he had never sinned since the 60s. Right? I remember thinking to myself, like, you just did. Like, what are you talking about? Right? Um, that's not what the author means here when he says that, that we're perfect. He's not saying, hey, look at any Christian around you, immaculate. Right? That's not what the author is trying to communicate. What he means by perfection is the same as when the priests had to, quote, perfect themselves in order to be able to enter into the Holy of Holies. That, that in order to enter into God's presence, because He's holy, because He is beautiful and, and infinite and, and perfect in all of His perfections, that, that God cannot be in the presence of unholiness. We would die. Right? And so what the priest has to do is be cleansed. Right? They would offer a sacrifice for themselves in Leviticus 16, if you, if you read about the Day of Atonement. Right? What, the, what, the, what the high priest would have to do once a year before they go into the Holy of Holies, before they can even offer a sacrifice for anyone else, is they have to offer a sacrifice for themselves from the outside to make themselves ceremonially clean enough to be able to enter into the Holy of Holies. Why? Because God is holy. And we can't defile his presence. So only the great high priest, once a year, is able to enter into that room. Into the holy of holies. And what does Christ do here in verse 14? He has perfected forever those who are sanctified. (laughs) That is not just the great high priest anymore. It's not just the kind of Archbishop of Israelite functions. That if you are in Christ, you can enter into the Holy of Holies. That not only that, in the eyes of God, you are perfectly, ceremonially clean. That you are holy in the Lord's sight. That you can enter into the very presence of God with complete confidence. That the Lord cannot reject you. You can right now enter into the heavenly holy of holies. And this sacrifice isn't something that needs to get renewed every year like a Costco membership. Right? It's one offering. He has perfected us forever. Forever. If you've grown up in the church, I'm sure you've seen altar calls. Right? The lights turn off, the keyboardist starts playing some extra holy sounds and the preacher invites you to come to the front and commit your life to the Lord. Now, I don't know who's in this room, so I want to be really clear. Some of us were saved during that kind of presentation. And I don't want to discount that for a single second. I think God can use any kind of gospel call or any kind of gospel presentation so long as the gospel is clear to save anybody. So I don't want to discount your experience at all. But, if you grew up in a church that practices regularly like I did, you probably accepted the Lord Jesus at least like five times. Why? Because you walk down the altar, you commit yourself to the Lord, and then you go home, and what do you do? You sin, right? You sin. Habitual sins continue to grip your heart, frustrations boil over, start to feel defeated cynical, maybe even afraid. And then at the next invitation, you decide, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to recommit. I'm going to renew or maybe start all over. Maybe you walk down the altar and you think, I'm just going to kind of make this right this time. Maybe you do this week after week. Maybe you do this day after day. Does that start to sound familiar with some of the stuff that we're reading this morning? See, what what Christ does is He frees us from this cycle of resolving to do better. If you've trusted in Christ, you are sanctified in the Lord's sight. You are perfect in the Lord's sight. You have every ability to enter into the very presence of a living God. You can do, think about this, you can do what no other Israelite Is that the great high priest could do. And unlike the great high priest, where you can only enter in once a year, you can do it right now. That every time that we pray, we enter into the most intimate presence of the most high God. Have you gone to him? Have you gone to this God? Don't let Satan deceive you with the weight of your own embarrassment or past sins or your hurts or harms, or, or anything that He might level against you to inhibit you from going to God. In Christ, you are perfect in His sight. The Father delights to see you just as much as He delights to see His Son Himself. You can go to Him. Can you start to see why the author of Hebrews is so worked up about these Hebrews being tempted to go back to Judaism? He's looking at them and he's trying to tell them, You are leaving the exact thing that this whole thing was about. You're leaving a thing that would actually work for you, something that is actually finished. Don't ditch it. Stay with Christ. That's why our temptations to kind of become legalistic in our minds actually cut at the very heart of the gospel. Actually, cut at the very heart of the gospel. That when you start to slip from Christ has saved me, I want to do good works because I delight in Him and what He has done for us and the Spirit's work in me, to I need to do this or else I might go to hell. Or I need to do this or else God might be embarrassed of me. Or I need to do this in order to become good enough that I can step into heaven. That, that what you've done, even though functionally it might look really similar, what you've actually done is you supplanted the very thing that Christ came to accomplish. You look at Jesus' sacrifice, and you say it's actually not enough. That's why it's so evil. That's why it's so important that we understand the function of what Christ's sacrifice accomplishes. Let's continue in verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put My laws on their hearts And write them on their minds. I'm going to pause there for a second. The author quotes Jeremiah to talk about what the Lord will do when Jesus comes. If I could give a quick little side topical sermon, right? Uh, A little sub sermon in my sermon, right? Notice who the author of Hebrews quotes, like the person that he says is speaking there in verse 15. Who's the one that testifies to us in verse 15? The Holy Spirit. Right, he's quoting Jeremiah, but he says that the Holy Spirit testifies to us about these things. See, the reason why we trust this book, the reason why we trust the Word is because we believe that God is the one who speaks, that, that what he's citing here isn't just Jeremiah's opinion, right, it's her kind of pithy thought. For us to chew on or some kind of philosopher's navel-gazing meditations about who God is. This is God himself speaking to us. That's why we listen. That's why we pay attention. That's why myself as a preacher, I can't be primarily preoccupied with jokes, trying to say something that sounds really profound to you. My job is to communicate what God's word says. That's what Matt's job is when he comes up to his pulpit to teach to you guys. Right? That's what my responsibility is. That's what the responsibility is of anyone who stands behind this pulpit is to teach what God says. All right, mini sermon off. What is he talking about? He says that he will put his laws on our hearts and write them on our minds. See, this isn't the same as God kind of giving us a, a plan to earn his forgiveness giving a, a way to be good enough for Him, a way to make a or resolve to do better. This law is an extension of His grace towards us. An extension of His grace towards us. That the covenant that the Lord makes with you and I, as Christians in Christ, is not the same as the covenant that He makes with Israel. That there's an actual difference. And the difference is that external actions cannot change internal affections. That makes sense? External actions can't change internal affections. You can't just resolve that you're going to keep pretending and then hope someday that, that if you fake it till you make it long enough that your heart will actually change. It's not, that's not what God wants from us. What God does is He actually writes His law into our hearts. He writes it into our hearts that, that He inscribes His good law Holiness, his good desires for us, opportunities for obedience on the inside in such a way that empowers us to be able to obey God on the outside. You see, Christians don't obey in order to earn God's approval. It's because God's given us undeserved grace that we can obey him. It's not until you receive that internal change that you can truly follow and obey him. This is not the same as admitting that you did wrong and resolving to do better. It's actually a result of what the better sacrifice has done for you. See, true Christian obedience goes from the heart to the hands. It goes from the heart to the hands. It doesn't mean that you don't struggle or that you shouldn't obey when you feel like it, but that the trajectory of our lives isn't oriented around just kind of just being good enough that God will accept us, right? That God has so transformed our lives and our heart that we want to be like Him. That we want to be like Him. Let's finish this section here by reading verse 17. Then He adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. There is forgiveness of these. There is no longer any offering of sins. God will never again no more remember your sins or your lawless acts. This isn't like God is giving himself voluntary amnesia, right? Like like he doesn't remember what you did like a clueless like brainwashed kind of buffoon just walking around. The idea here is that God has so forgiven your sins and your lawless acts that it has no bearing Whatsoever on your standing with him or your relationship with him. I mean, have you ever looked at a, a person that, that you're friends with or maybe a family member? In the back of your mind, you just have a highlight reel of all the ways that, that you regret interacting with that person things that you did wrong, a harsh word, a text you didn't respond to, a time that They really needed you and you weren't there. Those regrets create distance, don't they? A little bit of hesitancy. A little kind of, this feels awkward and weird. Sometimes you can look at a person and remember all the harm that they've done to you. When you're in Christ and God looks at you, He remembers nothing. He remembers nothing. That there's not a single ounce of condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That when He looks at you, He sees the blood of His Son. A true, complete payment for all our sins. And says that He will never remember your sins ever again. That this comprehensive forgetting is also a permanent forgetting. This isn't a second chance that when you mess up again, God suddenly busts out the laundry list of all the stuff that you did wrong before. This is a permanent forgetting in such a way that you never have to doubt your standing with God ever. He has cleansed and perfected you in such a way that you can always go to Him. And with that level of forgiveness, there's no offering left to give. Because the work's done. There's nothing left for you to offer God for acceptance because Jesus has given it all. That's why you guys gather here every Sunday. Not because of what we've done, because of what's in us, not because we need to sign off some kind of spiritual quota for the week, but because of what Christ has done for us. That's precisely what we do every single time that we take the Lord's Supper. See, we are not like Catholics, believing that that it's kind of like a representation of Christ, that the cracker actually becomes Christ's body, and, and that the juice actually becomes Christ's blood. That, that you receive grace every single time that you come forward through a sacrament. That's not what we believe. We don't believe that you actually receive any forgiveness from taking this stuff. Right? At, at our church, we use Stacy's pita chips, right, and sometimes cranberry juice when we forget to buy enough grape juice, right. There's nothing mystical or mysterious about this stuff here, right? The the crackers are still going to be crackers. The juice is still going to be juice, right? If you're on a keto diet, it's probably wrong for you, right? See, the grace that we receive when you partake of the bread, when you drink of the cup, comes from remembering what God has done, remembering what has already been done. You see, the Lord's Supper looks back and looks forward, but it primarily focuses on what Christ has done. What does Jesus say? He says, do this in what? Remembrance of me. He's saying that that when you look at this, when you you take the blood, right? when you eat the body, when when you take it, what you do is you remember what Christ has done. Every time that you eat a cracker or drink the cup here at the church, what you do is you look back and you think about Jesus on the cross. You think about that sacrifice. You think about the body broken for you. Think about the blood spilt for you. And you remember that there is a finished sacrifice. That that the grace that you receive comes from the reminder of the Gospel that you already believe in. See, the Lord's Supper is not primarily a commitment to do better. Don't turn the Lord's Supper into an altar call. Don't turn the Lord's Supper into an Old Testament sacrifice. Use it properly. Right? Remember what Jesus has done for you. Christ has finished His work. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. There's nothing left for us to do but to go to Him. To worship Him. Because Jesus paid it all. And all to Him I owe. And sin had left a crimson stain, but He washed it white as snow. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for for the finished work of Christ. We pray, Lord, that we would trust in Your Son's finished work for us. That we would believe in the power of Your blood to be able to go to You that we would trust in your body, power of your blood to to sanctify us, to to write your law into our hearts to be able to live for righteousness. Pray, God, that you would help Delray Church to grow in in their trust in you, in their unity in the gospel, in their love for Jesus, and that they would be able to spread that gospel to Los Angeles and to the ends of the earth. Pray these things in Jesus' name.